following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. forces came behind to the left and right the desert brought panic to their minds the evil of that hour was stronger than the sun that beat on them with nowhere left to run the chariots of Egypt drew nearer as they cried yet Moses stood there calmly With a fearless faith inside He said there is a power Far greater than the sword Stand still and you will witness A mighty salvation from our Lord And then the Red Sea parted For now Today there are questions that I need to ask as we consider this journey toward heaven. In my heart, I don't want to play any games. I don't want to varnish anything. I don't want to gussy it up. I don't want to make it look pretty. It's plain and it's straight and it's reality. And that is that there is a journey to make. There is a journey to make. And you can make that journey, but you are going to have to deal with your sin. There is no way around dealing with your sin. It has to be dealt with. John Bunyan, in this book, The Pilgrim's Progress, From This World to That Which Is to Come, edited by C.J. Lovick, published by Crossway Publishers. In this book, he has a discussion between Christian and hopeful as they're going through the enchanted land. And as they go through this enchanted land, he wants to ask questions to engage in discussion so they won't go to sleep. And that first question was, What made you decide to begin this journey? And then Hopeful rephrased the question, and the question was, how did you first become concerned about the condition of your soul? 
that really is the question. How did you become concerned about the condition of your soul? It's not an easy question. It's not an easy question, but it's an honest question. And it's a question you have to consider if you're going to understand the way you enter into the kingdom of God. It is first with a great concern about my sin. You see, let me read for you this this portion. What kept you from understanding that God was working through his blessed spirit to bring you to himself? And hopeful answers. First of all, I was ignorant that this was the work of God in my life. Since I'd never imagined that God would begin his work of conversion in a sinner's life by awakening him to his sin. Many that I speak with about the gospel of Jesus received Jesus Christ, went up to the altar, received Jesus Christ, became Christians, were assured that they were saved, and this was done on the basis of their receiving the wonderful gift of salvation. The question was, would you like to receive the gift of salvation? Well, only an idiot would not want to receive eternal life. I mean, you would have to be deranged in some manner to not say, absolutely, I hold my hand up, give me eternal life with eternal riches and eternal glory, everything that my heart desires, that's where I want to be. Unfortunately, if you receive Christ in this way, you were fooled. You took the Kool-Aid of the modern, wicked, apostate church. What do I mean? The only way you can enter into that promised salvation is if you allow God to first deal with your sin. And then you deal with your sin. If you go back all the way to the beginning, the devil lied to Eve. He said, you shall not surely die. In fact, you will become like gods. And all of the pagan history, all of the pagan theology, holds to the position that we are immortal creatures and that when we die, we go to a better place. And over 80% of those polled in America believe that when they die, they are going to go to a better place. I hear ungodly people, wicked people, pagan people, who when asked, and I've asked many of them, what happens after you die? They say, oh, don't worry about that, Ray. We never die. We're immortal. We're going to go to a better place. Now, we may have to come back here again in another body because we need to get a higher plane. We need to reach higher. We need to be more godlike. I hear this constantly from people. Unity Church and Unitarians and many others hold to the position, the Course in Miracles, if you're acquainted with that. They all hold to the same position that 
you don't die when you die. You're immortal. I even hear Christians talking this foolishness. They say that man is immortal, that when he dies and he's wicked, he's cast into hell and he'll be burning in hell forever because he's immortal. I have news for you. That's the devil's lie that we're immortal. Nowhere in the scriptures are we taught by God that we are immortal. Now, the gift that the righteous receive, not the unrighteous, the gift the righteous receive is immortality. But that gift of immortality, oneness with God, living for eternity, is a gift that comes to us through the blood of Jesus Christ. It comes as a free gift through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is not a gift that has been given yet, except to those who confess Jesus Christ, who have dealt with their sin, who no longer live, but Christ now lives in them. As Paul said in the book of Galatians, it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He says, I was crucified with Christ. So, please understand, there is no way to enter into salvation without first dealing with your sin. And the way God begins by His Spirit to work in your heart and in your life is by convicting you regarding your sin. As that conviction of sin comes upon your life, even as it did in this story, this allegory that Bunyan has written, you remember, Graceless, as was his name before he became Christian, became so concerned about his sin that people thought he was going crazy. All he could think about, all he could look at, all he could consider was that this book that he was reading was condemning him for his sin. But everything in our modern culture is inclined to teach us about self-esteem. Self-esteem is just pride. It's a modern name for pride. The self-esteem has to go. It's Christ-esteem that has to be lifted up. You see, when we begin to read the book, the Bible, it cuts through all of our false beliefs, and it begins to expose the sin of our heart the pride, the arrogance, the uncleanness. It begins to expose stealing, cheating, lying, fornicating. It begins to expose the club life. It begins to expose the wickedness of the television and the modern sporting activities that everyone is so crazy about. It begins to expose the violence in the movies, the violence in the video games. The Holy Spirit comes and begins to speak to our heart and says, shut that off. Turn away from that. The Holy Spirit comes and says, you don't want to walk that way. It's sin before God. Now, if we don't turn away, the Holy Spirit will, for a time, continue 
to approach us. Listen, then there was the appeal that sin still held over my flesh. I was reluctant to abandon it. Which of us is not reluctant to abandon that which brings us supposed pleasure? We're all reluctant to turn from our sin. That's why Jesus, in Revelation 2 and 3, giving the messages to the churches, speaks very forcibly about overcoming. The word overcome naturally has in it the understanding or the meaning of conflict. There is no overcoming without conflict. And some of you don't like conflict. You like to go with the flow, like that old song, row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. You like to flow with the current. You like to go with what's happening. Unfortunately, when you do that, you're going downstream toward destruction. It takes conflict to turn the boat around and begin to row it against the stream. You cannot enter into the kingdom of God floating down the stream toward hell. You can't enter into the kingdom of God when your path is leading you away from the celestial city because that's where the easy path is. So God wants to deal with the sin of our heart. Look, this whole salvation deal is essentially about sin. The whole Christian faith is about what do we do about our sin? Jesus Christ coming and dying on Calvary was all about God dealing with our sin. And sin, as defined by the Bible, is rebellion against God. It is deliberate choosing to rebel against the Most High God. I spoke with a man just before coming on this broadcast, and he was saying to me, but pastor, it's hard to die. Can't I just accept what Jesus did for me on the cross and enter into salvation? No, you can't just accept what Jesus did did on the cross, and enter into salvation. Because the blood of Jesus doesn't cover over our sin. It removes our sin. And that means we must overcome that sin. We must allow Jesus to come into our life and address us by the Holy Spirit regarding the sin that we're walking in. And if that sin is not cast off, if that sin is not repented of, if that sin is not utterly destroyed from our life by the power of the blood, we cannot enter into salvation. I know this is hard for some of you to hear, but I need to speak the truth to you, that the grace of God is sufficient. It is more than adequate. And by the grace of God, your life can be turned around By the grace of God, you can be made clean before Jesus Christ and by the blood. And you can enter into the glorious salvation 
that he has planned for you. Now I want to continue. This is reading from page 193 of Pilgrim's Progress. And did you ask him, that is, Christian is saying, did you ask faithful who this man was and how you could be justified by him? And justified again in the Old English means to be made righteous. Yes, Hopeful replied, and he told me, It was the Lord Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Most High, and he told me that I could be justified by him if I would trust in him and trust in what he himself had done in the days when he lived on earth, when he suffered and hung on the tree. I asked him how that man's righteousness could be effective to justify another before God. Faithful replied that Jesus was the mighty God, having done what he did and dying the shameful death, not for himself, but for me who deserved it instead. If I would believe in him and what he had done for me, then his worthiness would be imputed to me. Now this is where we get into a very touchy place. It was Bunyan's background that he was How should I put it? He was a Reformed Baptist, meaning that in his theological background, and he had no theological background except the study of the Word and the teaching that he had received from Calvinistic teachers, it was then taught, and he taught, that righteousness was imputed to me, meaning that righteousness from Jesus was given to me And this is where he becomes very confused. And it's where the church has finally clarified its position largely today. Some in the Reformed tradition have not bought this, but many and most have. Charles Stanley, for example, teaches that we are given righteousness, imputed righteousness, not imparted righteousness. Let me try to clarify the meanings. The old Calvinistic doctrine was that a man was covered with the righteousness of Jesus. And when God looks at you, he doesn't see you, he sees Jesus. That was the old teaching. And that was the teaching right here that John Bunyan is sharing with us. The difficulty with that teaching is that everything that Bunyan has taught us to this point in Pilgrim's Progress is plainly that sin must be dealt with and must be removed from the life of a sinner, or he cannot enter into the celestial city. And so up to this point, he has been teaching that righteousness is not imputed, it is imparted. And let me break down what I mean by that, and then I'm going to read some scriptures that will show you the same thing. Which would be more glorious, let me ask? Just refrain from any judgments for a moment and just go with me on this. What would be more glorious? If a man were given imparted righteousness and continued to walk in his sin, but claimed that he was a follower of Jesus, or 
a man who came to Jesus and righteousness was imparted to him, not imputed. And the righteousness was actually given to this man in reality in his life so that he no longer walked in sin but walked free of that sin. Let's take an example. Right now, one of the listeners, whom I will not identify, he and his family attend a major church in the Washington, D.C. area, a major Presbyterian church. This man is caught in the addiction of drugs. He's confessed this to me, and he went to his pastor and he confessed his sin to his pastor. And he said, Pastor, I've been in this church now for almost two years, and I still have no victory over my drug abuse. And his pastor said to him, Don't worry about your drug abuse. You are saved because you have confessed your sin, and you have received Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now, this young man comes to the National Prayer Chapel. And at the National Prayer Chapel, he's hearing a very different message. The message he's hearing at the National Prayer Chapel is, your drugs are a sin and they will keep you from heaven. And if you want the victory over those drugs, you're going to have to go before Jesus Christ and lay on your face and stay there repenting and asking God by his mighty power through the blood of Jesus to remove this drug addiction from your life. Now, he is in the process, he told me Sunday, of taking the time to go before God and day after day cry aloud to God for full deliverance from these drugs because he hates them and he no longer wants to walk in this affliction. And I'm joining him in prayer, knowing that Jesus is going to give him the full and complete deliverance from these wicked drugs. Now, I have another dear brother who attended another major non-denominational church, probably the largest church in the Washington, D.C. area. And when he would come out of church, He would get together with the other guys, and they would smoke their reefers. They would smoke their cigarettes. They'd talk about the parties they were going to, and then they'd go home. This young man one day came to the National Prayer Chapel, fell down on his knees, and said, If God cannot deliver me, I'm going to die. And we began to pray for his deliverance. This man was totally delivered, totally washed and made clean, and today preaches the gospel with power. And he's absolutely walking without any known sin or rebellion in his heart before God. He is walking clean. Tell me, Would you rather have the grace of God imputed to you and let you stay in your misery and your sin, or would you rather have the grace of God imparted to you 
and set you free and break every bondage and let you live the joyful life in Christ you were meant to live. You see, the wicked teaching of today by many pastors in Washington, D.C. and nationally is that you're going to have to continue walking in sin until the day you die. The Bible Answer Man has addressed this question, and on his broadcast, he scorns those of us who say that you can be set free from the bondage of your sin. He says you will always have to walk in your sin until finally at death you will be delivered and transformed, and then you will finally be free of your death. I want to say to you, death does not deliver from sin. Death is a reason. It is, it is caused by sin. You can be set free of your sin. There is no reason to continue walking in the drug abuse, in the alcohol abuse, in the fornication and the lust, the pornography, the bitterness, the anger, the love of money. There is no reason to continue walking in any bondage of sin because the precious blood of Jesus has the power to break that sin from your life. Has the sin been broken from your life? I played a song for you yesterday. All of Jesus, none of me. That's the answer to this question. I'm going to ask our producer, Eric, if he would run that song for us again. And while he's playing it, you're welcome to call 877-534-0780. Again, that number, 877 877- Five three four zero seven eight zero. I'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to be free of the bondage of your sin, don't call me and argue for imputed righteousness. It is abhorrible to me. It is an abomination before God. It is an unrighteous thing to teach that a man cannot be set free from sin. It is crucifying Christ again. I want to talk to those of you who, who want to be free who want the blood of Jesus to set you free, or I want to talk to those of you who have a testimony that Jesus has set you free, and today you walk in glorious victory over all known sin. Let's play that song. the truth I long to see. God said one day I'd be free. All trying led to failure. That's when I heard him whisper. All of Jesus, none of me. All of Jesus, all of Jesus, all of Jesus, none of me. All 
Jesus, not of me. Oh, the glorious liberation and endless celebration when I found him in wondrous jubilee. Should you ask, I'll gladly tell you of the key to our salvation, all of Jesus, none of me, all of Jesus, all of Jesus, all of Jesus. Jesus, none of me, all of Jesus, all of Jesus, all of Jesus, none of me. Of Jesus, none of me. Of Jesus, none of me. of Jesus, none of me, Conlon Carter, senior pastor of the Times Square Church in Manhattan, a dear brother and a dear friend. Our number is 877-534-0780. How are you with Jesus? Do you want to be free? The presence of God is here. He will minister to you if you will turn to him and cry aloud to him. If you will confess your sins, he will forgive you, and he'll remove them from you as far as the east is from the west. He will break every bondage. He will set you free. Let me read a scripture for you. Romans, the sixth chapter. I'm going to begin with verse 11. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. Titus tells us that it's grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. What what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to somebody to obey him as slaves, You are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, 
or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. This young man said to me today, Pastor, if I go back to the massage parlor, will God forgive me? How would you have answered that question? On one side, I have to say, yes, he'll forgive you over and over and over, but the time will come when he will no longer forgive you because you will simply be given over to your wickedness and you will no longer desire to repent. On the other hand, if you go to the massage parlor intentionally saying, God will forgive me, it's all right. You're well on your way toward hardening your heart against the Most High God and giving yourself over to utter darkness. The door of salvation swings open slowly, and the door of salvation swings closed slowly. But everything matters, and everything counts. He says in verse 17, this is Romans, the the sixth chapter, but thanks be to God that Though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin. You have become slaves to righteousness. Does that sound like a man who calls himself a Christian but still walks enslaved in the lust of his heart, in the pride of his life, in boasting of what he has and what he does? No. No, there is a place There is a place to be clean in Jesus, a place where we no longer walk in wickedness before him. What Jesus did on the cross was provide a way of escape from our sin, not in our sin. It's from our sin. My great concern today, my heart heart concern today, is that you may be caught in the clutches of sin and you may be casual about it. You may think, well, I'm doing the best I can do and, and I'm improving in every way I know. No, this is not about self-improvement. And it's not about defeating sin by resisting the sin. This is about you being crucified with Christ. It's about being set free from sin, not by struggling against the sin, but by looking to Jesus Christ, by letting him be the ruler of your heart and your life, by allowing the blood to do its work. That's why my church, I say my church, it's not my church, it's the Lord's church, but it's it's where I go. It's the people I love. We don't do a lot of workshops and seminars teaching you strategies for dealing with this aspect or that aspect of life. I have to tell you, when I sit down with a couple to talk with them about marriage issues, my question to them is always right off the bat, the first thing, are you willing to do whatever Jesus asks you to do? Are you willing to allow Jesus to have the rulership over this marriage? Are you willing to forgive your partner? Are you willing to recognize your own sin? And if that causes a person to rise up and say, No, 
then I say, I'm sorry, I can't be of any help to you in your marriage. Marriage counseling is not about sorting out who's right and who's wrong. It's about each person coming and repenting for the destruction they've brought in that marriage. It's for each person to come and ask Jesus to come and stand between them so they don't kill each other. Marriage counseling is really about reading the Bible and understanding that Jesus wants to be first in your life. And and I have to tell you, I didn't always believe that. In seminary, there was a mandatory course that we had to take on marriage counseling. And the first day, this jovial marriage counselor stood up and he said, I want to disabuse you young seminarians of a notion that I'm sure you may have heard somewhere. He said, the Bible is not enough and prayer is not enough to heal a marriage. He said, you have to deal with psychotherapy. You have to deal with a marriage counselor and you have to have someone who will walk through, you, through with you in the process. He said, prayer is, is a wonderful thing and it has great power, but it's not enough to heal a marriage. Well, I bought that hook, line, and sinker and said, okay, then I, I need to learn how to do psychotherapy. And so I went further and became a pastoral counselor and began to lead psychotherapeutic groups for marriage enrichment and counseling and also individual therapy. I almost left the ministry to go pursue that course because it was a very rewarding profession. And then God got a hold of my life. And he said, stop this foolishness. It's not psychotherapy that's needed, it's repentance. It's coming to the Word of God. It's letting the Holy Spirit begin to soften the heart and teach the way of the cross. Now, I know by saying that, I'm going to sound very uneducated, very unsophisticated. That's fine. I am. I have the education, but I had to throw it out. I became that psychotherapeutic counselor, and I had to throw it all in the trash because, frankly, it didn't work. The scientific research evidence is abundantly clear that psychotherapeutic process works no better than a person going and talking with a good friend and opening their heart to a good friend. It's a ploy of the, of the dark one. And so I, I don't go to that as my source. I go to the Scripture. I go to prayer. I go to honesty and transparency. I go to speaking the truth in love. All of these things the Scriptures teach us we must do. But until a person is willing to humble their heart, until a person is willing to become a servant of the Most High God, the marriage is not going to go very far. But it's true in all aspects of life. We have to deal with this sin issue. There's no shortcut here. There's no way around it. If you want to go to heaven, if you want to spend eternity with Jesus, then you're going to let the Holy Spirit deal to the very bottom of the sin issue in your heart. 
You're going to have to give up being a victim. You're going to have to take responsibility for your sin. You're going to have to say, it's me. I'm guilty. I did it. I'm responsible. And even if you think you're not guilty and not responsible, you're going to have to say, God, change my heart, change my mind. I am the guilty party. It's me. Now, there are cases where there is abuse in a marriage. The abused person is going to have to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, look at the mess I've made. That person is going to have to repent, and they're going to have to say, Jesus, I should not have allowed this abuse to go on. It was wrong. Forgive me. And then that person is going to have to follow Jesus and separate from that abusive person and not allow sin to be exercised over their life. You see, Jesus does not ask us to agree with or to walk with a person who is walking in sin. Now, there are some cases where he allows us to remain in that place as a witness and a testimony for the salvation of that person. Understand, I'm not playing cheap and easy with with what a marriage is. It's the most sacred thing God has given to us. It represents he and and the church. But this issue of sin has to be dealt with. We can't play victim. We can't blame somebody else. We finally have to come before God and say, Lord Jesus, it's me. I did it. I made the choice to go there. I made the choice to marry. I made the choice to do this, or I made the choice to do that. I made the choices, Jesus. And I should not have made that choice. I should not have taken that path. But I didn't read the book, and I didn't seek your advice. I took it on myself, and I did what I wanted to do. It's me, God. I'm the guilty one. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to get honest with God about your condition? And my concern is for those of you today who are pretending that you're not the guilty one, that you're a victim, that you're blaming, that you wish God would straighten somebody else out. My concern is for those of you today who who walk in sin and claim you're saved who go to churches that are filled with all of the music and uproar, the entertainment, the Broadway production, and no arrows of conviction strike your heart. And you're allowed to call yourself a Christian without ever dealing with the wickedness of your your life. The selfishness, the self-centeredness, the arrogance, the, the hostility, the bitterness, the anger, the 
the laziness, the gluttony. I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah, according to Ezekiel, was not first condemned because they were homosexual. According to Ezekiel, they were first condemned because they didn't care and because they were gluttons. We have to deal with our sin. Have you dealt with your sin? Are you willing to deal with your sin? Are you willing to pick up the Scriptures and begin to read it and let the Holy Spirit begin to convict you of your sin? Are you willing to take this journey toward the celestial city, entering by the narrow gate and going to the cross and being crucified with Christ? Some of you have been journeying on the narrow path for many years, but you have never been to the cross. You've never entered in the narrow gate. Your friends would all say, oh, they're wonderful Christians because you've been able in your flesh to clean yourself up a little bit. You've been able to get the gross sins out of sight. But you're still a sinner before God. And how are you going to stand in the day of judgment? How are you going to face Jesus on that great day and say to him, Jesus, I couldn't help it. I was a sinner because your blood was not powerful enough to release me from my captivity. Really? Are you going to say that to Jesus on that great day? Well, my pastor told me that I was saved even though I was sin. Really? Are you going to say that to Jesus on that last day, on that judgment day? Are you going to say to Jesus, Look, I was an elder in the church. I was a minister. I preached the gospel. I did all of these wonderful things for you. I gave tithe and offering. Really? Are you going to say that to Jesus on the last day? You know what he'll say to you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I don't know you. And you'll say, but I have this wonderful sentimental feeling in my heart. I love you, Jesus. And you're going to be screaming at him as he he has his angels hauling you off to hell. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Don't throw me in hell. Really? Really? Are you willing today to deal with your sin before God? Are you willing to repent of your sin and get clean by the wonderful, awesome, mighty power of the name of Jesus Christ? The blood of Jesus is here to wash you and make you clean. Are you willing to let him do that work in your heart? Are you willing to be released? Are you willing to turn away from those things that have had such a grip on your life? Are you willing to be made clean by the precious blood of Jesus? He loves you. He died for you. There is nothing Jesus would not do for you. He will answer whatever you pray in the name of Jesus. He will wash away your sin. He will restore you to his kingdom. And those of you who have walked for years as a Christian, so-called, don't come to Jesus with your excuses. 
come to Jesus and plead his blood. And let his blood do that work now in your heart. I'm going to read some more for you. Verse 22. This is Romans 6, verse 22. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you hear what he's saying? Let's take it at simply what it says. But now that you have been set free from sin, set free from the past sin, set free from the sin of today, you've become then a slave to God, and the benefit you reap immediately is a holy life, and the result is eternal life. Have you received that holiness? And have you been given the gift of eternal life? The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. And then let me read chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is, in Christ Jesus, without any known rebellion or sin in your heart. It's all been left behind. It's been repented of. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Some of you want to argue with me and say, but wait. The law of sin means I can't be set free from that until I die. That's a lie. Can you grab a hold of this good news? That the Spirit of life, the Holy Spirit, by the blood of Jesus, set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. In other words, a Christian no longer lives according to the sinful nature. He lives instead according to the Holy Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. So you can say, I'm a Christian, but you're controlled by that sinful nature, and you keep going back to that wickedness time after time. Paul is saying, you can't please God that way. Verse 9, 9b, And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. 
But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And then verse 13, for if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. It's plain and simple. If you live in the misdeeds of your body and call yourself a Christian, you will die. You will not enter into salvation. But if you by the Spirit, that is by the blood, put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. There it is. Now let me pray with you. Almighty God, I've spoken your word with kindness. I've spoken your word with honesty. And now I ask that your spirit would come and do the work of conviction. For, Lord, I can't convict a man's soul. Only you can. I ask that you'd pour out your gift of conviction, that wonderful work that your Holy Spirit is eager to do. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. I'll talk with you tomorrow. God bless you. His glory with great joy. With great joy. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. 